Hello, everyone, and welcome to this special edition of Employment Matters, brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the world's largest network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I'm your host, Pete Waltz. Along with bringing you updates and critical events happening all around the world, we're always fortunate to have the chance to dial in our local ELA lawyers. These good folks are practicing on the ground in jurisdictions all around the world, working daily to help their clients move through difficult times. On the program, we span the globe. We spoke with members in all international markets from China, Italy, Korea, across Asia and Europe, down into Latin America and back here into the US. Today, we're going up into Northwest Canada to check in with our Canadian member in British Columbia. Joining us on the program is James Kondopoulos, a founding member and partner at Roper Grayell. James is also co-chair of the ELA's Member Engagement Committee in the North American region. He's been a guest commentator and host on many of our webinars in the past, always has great insights to share, not only from a Canadian perspective, but he always seems to bring a global picture to mind. James, it's going to be great to hear what you have to say today. I understand the topic is an employer's duty to investigate employee complaints of workplace wrongdoing. Welcome to the program, James. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Pete. Thank you very much. And it really is great to be joining you today to discuss this topic. So let's jump into that, James. You know, assume that an employer is presented by an employee that has a complaint of either improper or inappropriate or even unlawful conduct in the workplace. Is an employer required to investigate that, regardless of what the claim might be? All right. I will preface my comments with this observation. I, I am an employment and labor lawyer practicing at Roper Grail in Vancouver, British Columbia. And my comments necessarily are going to be coming from the Canadian perspective. Now, I imagine they will be useful in other jurisdictions as well, because many of the principles and ideas I will describe have general application. Now, with respect to your specific question, Pete, the requirement to investigate, there are a couple of layers to the analysis. First off, we need to consider whether there is a specific statutory obligation to investigate, a specific statutory obligation regarding how the investigation is to be conducted. Now, for example, in some occupational health and safety contexts, investigations might be mandated by law. So in that situation, you'd be considering the legislative regime in which the issue is arising and complying with the statutory requirements. Now, the next layer to the analysis is consider whether the issue is arising in a union or non-union context. Of course, where you're dealing with a unionized work environment, it really is the collective agreement and any letters of understanding or agreement you've reached with the trade union, which will prevail. And you will be guided by what those agreements and documents provide with respect to the need to conduct an investigation, under what circumstances to conduct an investigation, and in what fashion to do the inquiry. In the non-union environment, you will be guided by the individual contract of employment. The contract between the employer and the employee and what that contract specifically provides. In both contexts, you have to ask yourself whether there is a workplace policy in place. Has the company implemented or introduced a specific policy? For example, you might have a respectful workplace policy. 
or you might have an anti-discrimination and harassment policy. And if you do, you need to consider what that policy provides with respect to workplace investigations, and the employer should comply with its own policies. I hope that's helpful, Pete. It is, definitely. And I guess it really comes down to what the definition of some of these behaviors are. So can you give us some examples of, let's say, examples where employers haven't done an appropriate investigation, they were deficient in the way they exercised that, and maybe some of the outcome of that? I certainly can. And I do have a couple of interesting cases to discuss, specific real-life cases, where things went terribly wrong for the employer. And from those cases, we will extract some learnings. The two cases I will discuss come out of Canada. The one is out of Alberta from 2011. It's the Elgert and Home Hardware Stores case. And the other case is out of Ontario, and it was decided earlier this year and involved Cooksville Hyundai. I'll turn to Elgert first. Interesting set of facts. Elgert was a 48-year-old supervisor working at the employer's distribution center. One of the employees under his supervision was Krista Bernier, who not insignificantly was the daughter of Elgert's boss. Bernier was a problem employee. She had a romantic interest in a male coworker and would follow him up and down the aisles and organize her work so the two of them could spend the maximum amount of time with one another. This resulted in job performance issues and complaints. In early 2002, Elgert determined he had to move Bernier to a work area away from her male coworker. And later that year, he made some unfavorable comments about her on her performance review. She was unhappy about that. And at least two of her coworkers heard her say she would get even with Elgert and make him pay for transferring her. Shortly afterwards, she told her father about an incident that allegedly took place around four months earlier. She said that Elgert had followed her up some stairs into a storage room, had bumped her against the table and put his legs between hers. Bernier said she yelled and left as another employee entered the room. Now, a formal sexual harassment complaint was not filed against Elgert, but when Bernier's story came to the attention of senior management in a roundabout way, an investigator from inside the organization was assigned to conduct an investigation. The investigator was a longtime friend of Bernier's father. He was untrained. He was inexperienced. He did not know how to conduct an investigation of a complaint of sexual harassment. He did not obtain a written statement from Bernier neglected to interview at least one key witness, and in addition, interviewed witnesses with no first-hand knowledge of the alleged incident involving Elgert. The investigator failed to examine the wider relationship between Elgert and Bernier, and did not consider motive and the possibility of fabrication. In short, the investigator did not gather and weigh all of the relevant evidence and make the necessary credibility assessments. Now, it gets even worse, Pete, because in a meeting with Elgert, the investigator dealt with him in an accusatory manner. Elgert asked what he was alleged to have done and was told he knew. 
Algorit explained he did not know and pleaded for particulars of the alleged wrongdoing. No particulars were given to him by the investigator. No questions were asked as to his side of the story, and he became upset and broke down in tears. He asked for a careful investigation of the sexual harassment complaint, but that fell on deaf ears. Now, he had worked at the distribution center for nearly 17 years. He had a good, clean employment record, but notwithstanding that, he was immediately suspended from employment, escorted out of the building, not allowed to collect his belongings, which incidentally included a logbook that detailed Bernier's job performance problems and could not be located after the commencement of litigation. Now, on the heels of the suspension, the investigator told Elgert's son, who also worked at the distribution center, that his father would not have been suspended for sexual harassment had the investigator not been 100% sure of Elgert's guilt. Elgert never returned to work. He was dismissed from employment for cause and provided with a termination letter that cited the grounds for dismissal as sexual harassment and insubordination. And the latter ground of discipline there was because in the period of time following his suspension, he refused to meet with the employer in the absence of legal counsel. Now, Elgert responded by commencing an action for wrongful dismissal and defamation. That's the Elgert case. So James, that's incredible. I mean, the fact that they never really listened to the other side of the story. Now you mentioned you had another case. Tell us about that one. That was the Ontario case, Pete, the one involving Cooksville Hyundai. In that case, the complainant alleged that while she was an employee of the auto dealership, her supervisor, Richard Paquette, sexually assaulted her at a hotel room after work hours. She filed a complaint and the employer engaged an external human resources advisor. Contrast that with Algert, where it was an internal person. So the employer engages an external advisor to investigate the matter. A brief investigation ensued. The complainant eventually resigned and accepted a job with lower pay at Cooksville Hyundai's sister store. The complainant alleged, among other things, that Cooksville Hyundai violated her rights under the Ontario Human Rights Code and discriminated against her on the basis of sex. The tribunal accepted the facts of the sexual assault as true because Paquette pleaded guilty to a charge of assault arising out of the same facts in a separate criminal proceeding. The tribunal then went on to hold that the investigator, and by extension, the employer, because of course the investigator was acting as an agent of the employer, the tribunal held the investigator did not properly investigate the complaint and breached the complainant's rights under the Human Rights Code. Now, in coming to that conclusion, the tribunal identified several key errors in the investigation. First, Although there were suitable anti-violence and harassment policies in place at the time of the complaint, the investigator did not refer to any of those policies during her investigation, and perhaps more critically, did not consider whether Paquette had breached any of those policies. So back to the point I made at the outset, if you have policies, make sure you're actually complying with them. The tribunal also went on and found that the investigator took no steps to seek relevant or material information from Paquette, although it was the employer's policy to put allegations of misconduct to a respondent and ask him or her for a response, 
The investigator did none of that. As a result, there was nothing for Paquette to deny, and the investigator did not have two accounts of the facts to compare and assess. The tribunal accepted that as evidence of the fact that the investigator did not take the complaint seriously and failed to conduct a reasonable investigation. Now, the last finding of the tribunal was that the investigator acted insensitively towards the complainant. Indeed, within a half hour of her submitting her account of what had happened, the complainant was advised by the investigator that the investigation was at an end. No details were provided of what the investigator had concluded and how the investigation had completed. The tribunal held that the investigator was extremely dismissive of the complainant and her complaint, and the employer's indifference to her situation was a denial of her dignity. Wow, James, those are some incredible cases. Let's kind of jump into the legal consequences of this. I mean, in the cases you mentioned and in other cases, what are some of the legal consequences, including perhaps the financial consequences in some of these things? Can you give us a sense of that? I sure can. In a nutshell, they were very significant and costly. Now, apart from the negative PR, remember all these decisions once made are published and publicly available. And apart from the stigma for the employers and their personnel, there were serious financial ramifications. So in Elgert, the jury sitting on the trial found that he was not guilty of the alleged sexual harassment, and he was awarded two years of pay in lieu of notice, $200,000 in aggravated damages, and $300,000 in punitive damages, interest, and costs. Now, Pete, on, on appeal, the Court of Appeal overturned the aggravated damages award, noting there was a paucity of evidence showing actual damages in support of the claim for aggravated damages. The court also reduced the punitive damages award to $75,000 on the basis that the jury award was inordinately high and unnecessary to convey the message intended. But remember, the jury award was only rolled back in part and after the substantial cost and hassle of an appeal to the higher courts. As well, the Court of Appeal delivered this stinging rebuke. The majority found it surprising that Home Hardware described this as the most serious allegation of sexual harassment ever at the company, but assigned an investigator who had no training or experience whatsoever in investigations. The court was critical of the employer's failure to conduct an appropriately broad investigation that took account of Bernier's possible motives against Elgert. And then in the Ontario case of Cooksville Hyundai, to similar effect, the tribunal was openly critical of the employer. It found that the investigation was seriously flawed and conducted in an insensitive manner and the company was ordered to pay the complainant $55,000 as compensation for the infringements of her rights under the Ontario Human Rights Code. So then, James, you know, kind of wrapping this up, let's talk about best practices. Do you have some pointers, things that can ensure that employers don't stumble when they're conducting their investigations in a fair and appropriate way? Give us kind of the high level of what people need to do to make sure they do this right. Now, my remarks here are subject to this proviso. Carefully review your collective agreement, 
or the individual employment contract or the applicable workplace policy because a different or elevated investigation requirement or standard might be stated there. In the abstract though, and, and generally speaking, we know from cases like Elgert because of what the courts have told us that there is no specific standard of investigation that employers must follow. What's required will depend on the facts alleged in the complaint, the facts surrounding the employer, its policies, its sophistication, its experience, and the workplace generally. Now, some very high-level pointers, Pete, some best practices. Use an impartial and unbiased investigator. Now, think back to Algert. When he met with the investigator, his case was prejudged and the termination of his employment was already a given. Apprise the employee under investigation of all allegations against him or her. That's a matter of fairness. It gives the employee the opportunity to hear the allegations and in effect, tell his or her side of the story. Gather and weigh all relevant evidence, even if you have to interview multiple witnesses and be sure to meet with both sides witnesses without fear of those individuals of retaliation or reprisal. Make the necessary credibility assessments. Don't shy away from those. Remain mindful of the inherent dangers of hearsay evidence. Remain mindful of motive and the possibility for fabrication. Keep accurate, detailed records of interviews. Consider asking the individual being interviewed to review and sign any statement that he or she has provided. Now that's not always appropriate or necessary, but certainly something worth thinking about. Perhaps most importantly, use a skilled workplace investigator. Give serious consideration to hiring an independent third-party investigator from outside the organization. Those are my high-level pointers, Pete. Always thorough, always to the point, James. It's always a pleasure to listen to your advice. Thanks for sharing that with us today. I'm hoping our listening audience can put some of that to work in their organization. Thanks. Enjoy the rest of your day, James. Thanks so much, Pete. Take care. If you'd like to connect with James Kondopoulos from Roper Grayell or any of our lawyers around the world, search for them on the ELA website at ela.law. Just go to the big Find a Lawyer widget in the center of the page, click on the drop-down box, choose the jurisdiction that you're looking for. There you can also sign up to receive invitations for upcoming webinars, download white papers, get access to on-demand content from our online library, or use the ELA's exclusive Global Employer Handbook. You've been listening to Employment Matters, a podcast brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the world's largest network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I'm Pete Waltz. Thanks for listening.